Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is found on page 1093 of your Pew Bibles. We will be reading verses 14 through 30. We'll be reading of a disastrous homecoming, as we could call this, as Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth, to those he would have grown up with, his his friends and family, neighbors, those he knew very closely. And we read of what happens at Nazareth. Before we read God's holy word, let's take a moment to prepare our hearts in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, as we turn to your word and to a, a, a narrative, a story, and even a sermon preached by your great Son, we pray that we would hear these words and that we would hear the, the truth of them. We would be receptive to what is said and that we would see the good news that is proclaimed by Christ as well as his warning a warning that he gives to those who are a lot like us, or we should say we are like them. We pray we would hear the good news and rejoice in it, and we would heed the warning and refrain from the same error that our forefathers fell into. We pray this in your name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Ascends the reading of God's word. What a homecoming. Hometown marveling to domestic wrath. 
And in the space of a single sermon, a single message in this synagogue, they go from marveling, and we we could almost insert some things here that we would know about what they desire here. They go from marveling at his words to likely thinking, this is the one, let's let's set him up as, as king. All the works that you've done out there, do here as well in your hometown. Do these things, marvelous, wondering words, even marveling, isn't this Joseph's son? And then, a rather radical change and shift. And to those who would have known Christ in a very clear way, he was brought up there. They knew his family. They knew those he was sired from. They knew him. He was the boy there who grew up. And there is such wrath, such anger, they're ready to murder him. They're ready to treat him as a false prophet. And so they go from marvel to just anger and wrath. In the space of Jesus' single sermon, you see what Jesus brings. This was promised in Simeon's song. Remember, did he not tell Mary, this child is destined, he's appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and that is what we see here. We see a message of good news and a message of rejection. We see a message of rising and a message of falling. This is what Jesus brings. Jesus' message is joyful deliverance for the poor, but a sharp warning to presumptive, entitled covenant elites. That's how we could try to encapsulate Jesus' message here and the narrative itself. What what does this text point us to? Well, it's that Jesus' message is joyful deliverance for the poor. It's a great message. A wonderful message of good news, such good news that it couldn't be eclipsed by anything else. This is the best news ever. And yet, it's also characterized by a sharp warning to presumptive, entitled covenant elites, to those who expect it. And here we see echoes to what John the Baptist had proclaimed. Remember, this was not long ago. This was only a few texts before this where John had said, now in the, in the narrative it's not long ago, this was years before when John had said this, or no, I'm skipping ahead. This was shortly before he said that. Just erase what I just said there. This was close in time and in the narrative. And John had said to those who came out to him, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He had called the Jews, these these children of Abraham, he called them serpents, and he said to them that if the Lord needed children from Abraham, he could raise them up from the stones. And so you see as well what Jesus is doing here. His message is, is very similar to the one of John, and yet it takes it further because it's not just a message that points forward to the one to come. Jesus is the one who says, it's here, I am the one. Great news, and yet the danger of rejection. The danger to his people who would presume to have him as their own, who would presume to be those who have a claim on him and yet perhaps do not. And that's what we see what is going on here. And this passage is very important to Luke. Luke places it right here at the beginning of the gospel. And and, and this is just for our own scripture reading, our own knowledge of how to read God's word. We, We ask in especially the gospels why it's arranged the way it is. We have four Gospels, and three of them, the Synoptic Gospels, all take a very similar approach. They have a lot of the same material, and yet they will differ in their arrangement and in various ways, and it's it's important for us to ask why that is. You see, Matthew and Mark take this account and place it later in Jesus' ministry. 
Luke not necessarily claiming this is how it happened in time, as if this was the first action, but he places this here in his gospel at the beginning of Christ's ministry. Why does he do that? And look as well what comes right before it. We read those verses, verses 14 and 15. In our Bibles, it has its own little heading. That's because it is. It's an important section. It's a summary text. It's a summary of Jesus' ministry itself. You read, after being tempted by the devil, that's what had just come before that, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went all through the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. There's a summary. It's a summation of what Christ's ministry is. And you see what he places the importance on. Jesus preaching. Jesus preaching. That's, that is kind of strange, perhaps, to us. This is a profound miracle worker doing things that no one else has done. And yet what Luke says that characterizes his ministry and summarizes it is his preaching ministry to the synagogues. Summarizing his ministry. Now what comes right after that? A synagogue sermon in his hometown. And so what Luke is doing is he's setting this sermon up as a paradigm, as a pattern for all his teaching and his preaching. That's why this is important for Luke. Luke means for us to see in this a a summary of what Christ proclaims, a summary even of his ministry. And so the sermon, we could say, would characterize all the preaching and teaching that he would do. Here's the content, and the content is that of good news, a fulfillment of Old Testament texts, of the coming of the kingdom, and at the same time, a warning and danger. And that's what we read as we go through his preaching ministry. And we're going to look at that this morning. And first, looking at the message of good news. That's our first point. Jesus' message of good news. And then later we will look at Jesus' message of rejection. We'll see in summarizing this message of good news, we're going to look at this in three points. So characterizing the message that Jesus says that is good, the good part, the good news of this, his teaching is the recipients of good news, the content of good news, and the timing of this good news. First, the recipients of good news. He quotes from this text in Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so who are the recipients of this good news? It's the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Who are they? How do we start unwrapping that? And this is where you come to the disagreements, those who want to say this is the the poor, this is the economically poor, the social poor. These are those who were the downcast of society. And then you will come to those who will say, no, that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying this is the spiritual poor. These are the ones who are recipients, responding to the message, know their sinful state. So they may not be poor economically, they're poor spiritually. They know that they need a Savior. They're, They're recipients of the message. Now what we don't want to do is diminish what Jesus is doing here. And what he's doing here is combining those in a very profound way. It's not one or the other. To say one or the other will lack the full expression of this good news, will lack the the full intent of these recipients. That's why it's important to say, who are the poor? 
Is it simply you don't have a lot of possessions and so Jesus' news is good for you? Well, no, far too simplistic. And is it merely, well, you want to respond to this good news? You, you believe you need him? Yes, it is that. But it's all of it. It's all of it. He comes and describes them in this way. So you have poor, those who are poor, those who are captive, prisoners. Who are these? Blind, oppressed. You see, these, these characterize a economic standing, physical maladies, social oppression, captivity. Yes, they characterize all those things, but they also characterize it physically and spiritually. This is important. It's important because Jesus' message, Jesus' good news, is something so far superior, so much more grand than either the poor I'm going to raise up and you'll, you'll have possessions, or those you know need me, I'm going to save you. It's all is put right in me. The kingdom of God comes, and when the kingdom of God comes, it doesn't merely affect the spiritual realm. And it doesn't merely affect the physical realm. It breaks in and affects creation. And so we are meant to understand by the poor, the oppressed, the captives, the blind, those who are oppressed in sin, those who are exiled, those who bear the marks of the curse, those who are, who are physically blind, and those who know that they are spiritually blind. And what unites them all together is that they are the people of God who respond in faith. And so it changes all of that. That's what Jesus' miracles are. Jesus' miracles is, is a little piece of the kingdom of heaven brought down to earth. And so when he heals the blind eyes, we aren't meant to just say, you see, that physical healing, that didn't really matter. It didn't fully matter that he, he healed his, his eyes. What's really important is the, the blindness of his sin and that being taken away. It's both. It's the fact that in the kingdom coming and breaking in, you have that foretaste. Let's call it an appetizer of the kingdom. Because, yes, Christ didn't come to change all of the world and all of creation yet in that way. But even in his miracles and what he does, he's giving you those appetizers of what the kingdom is. And it brings about a whole transformation of the world itself. The best way to understand this, I believe, I've said this before when we went through the, the songs of Advent, because they, they hit on this theme quite strong. best way to understand this is the way that the people would have looked at the text itself. The text he's quoting is Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, who would, who would the original audience have thought of? Well, they would have likely thought of the exiles, Isaiah was prophesying the exile and its coming. And then later in the book, he talks about how they will be brought back. And so this good news would likely have been understood to an exiled people of God. And we can even go further back to the exodus and to the good news, the breaking in of God's kingdom, as you could call it in an even more of a foretaste sense then, was to a people oppressed, to the poor, to those who were captive and imprisoned. You see how fulsome that is. It's, it's not just social, economic, it's not just spiritual, it's the entire condition of the people of God. These are the poor, the captives, those who respond in faith. You can't truly be the, the poor who receive good news without that faith, but it's a change of all. 
That's how full the kingdom of God is. And that brings to us a message of hope. In seeing the full expression of what the kingdom is, we see not only the answer to what what bears down on us, our sin, our enslavement to that sin, but we see that it is taken away in Christ. We see that even the tears we shed now about a broken world, as we are the oppressed who bear the marks of the curse, as we are those who are pressed down under that weight of this world and of sinful nature, all these things we are aptly described as the poor. And those who eagerly await the fullness of the kingdom of God and what gives us hope is that we see his kingdom comes to change it all. And that means that not only do you have an answer for your faith, it means you have an answer for your tears. It means the tears that you shed about all that happens on this broken world, God's kingdom reverses. He numbers those tears. He takes them away. He changes it all. His kingdom fundamentally corrects everything. Whether it be the, the, the way the poor are put down, and that's, that's common in God's word, to chide the rulers and authorities who put down the poor and oppressed. And there are those who have wealth beyond measure and yet are aptly described the poor because they know that this doesn't matter. And they yearn for deliverance from this world and the oppression, the, the oppression of sin. So who are these, these recipients? The truly exiled covenant members who know their sins, repent of their sins, and are taken from captivity into liberty. We are the poor and the oppressed. And we're meant to see it fully in that way. We, we see it very clear in the people Jesus ministered to. He went to the oppressed, to the poor, to the outcast, as that not only mirrored their, their spiritual condition, but those who he had called to himself. And he went to those as well who were teachers, teachers who would respond, teachers who had great standing in the, the community and were changed in their life, transformed. It was to all characterized by an exiled people who now see the kingdom of God come. Because you see, Isaiah's words can't find a full fulfillment in the deliverance from exile. Jesus shows that. He shows it in telling them that today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing this, this, the fulfillment of the one anointed, the prophet of God anointed with the spirit to come and proclaim this good news can't just be deliverance from Babylon. It's deliverance from the sinful world itself. It's deliverance from the clutches of the devil. And I am that man, Christ says. I am the anointed one. And today it's fulfilled in your hearing. Those are the recipients of this good news. What about the content? We've been getting at the content of good news. We'll just say it more clearly. Jesus came delivering good news of that spiritual and physical variety. And in other words, the good news Jesus brought was the arrival of God's kingdom. That's very important. We use that terminology so much, I think it just kind of just goes right over our heads. We just know it. We know that, yeah, it's the kingdom coming. But in, as we've already begun to scratch the surface of what that means, that, that's the fulfillment of redemption. That's everything the people were looking for. 
Now, they had distorted it likely. Likely what they were hoping for was the coming Messiah and a fulfillment of of themselves as the poor. And this is what we'll get to in Jesus' second part of, of careful of presumption. But they were presuming that they were the ones that were poor. They were the ones that were captive. Why not? They're the people of God. They're under the clutches of Rome. Would this not mean that, that the one who's coming and says, today I'm fulfilling it in your hearing, doesn't that mean the nation will rise again? That's what they think. And they think that they're a part of it. And what we see is that, that good news of the coming kingdom they did not fully understand. They had a very reductionistic idea of what the kingdom of God meant. Those like Simeon knew, but those who here and were the majority didn't understand that God's kingdom didn't just affect the society and wasn't going to be a a nation in the land of Israel that would, would spread across the world. It would be a spiritual kingdom, one to make disciples of who? The poor of the world, the spiritually downcast, and the one Oppressed by the physical effects of the sin and cursed world itself. It would go out to them and the world and the globe would be transformed. That's the coming of the kingdom. That's why this good news is, is good news. We are no longer enslaved to sin. This passage from Isaiah is used by Jesus to show that God's kingdom is indeed coming because he is the anointed one to bring back the exiles we need to take comfort in this truth. At the end of the day, this is far greater than our standing, far bigger than who we are in America or, or Beecher or Dyer or St. John or Grant Park, and I'm missing other cities. That'll, that'll, it's enough to represent our congregation, I believe. It's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than us. A total transforming power. A power that, as Daniel talks about in the stone that's cut from the mountain, destroys the empires of the world. We're we're part of something here that is so much greater than the superpower America, that is so much greater than what empires in the world can boast. This is what Christ brings. The content of good news is that total deliverance. The coming of God's kingdom means deliverance from temptations. Won't that be an amazing day when we don't have to fight that incessant battle and we're freed from this? That's what the coming of the kingdom means. That everyday struggle to keep God's law, what we read earlier in the service, is taken away in the kingdom of God and the perfection that it does and will bring. There's the already and the not yet of it. It's already come. We're already members of it, and we await its fullness. Kingdom comes and starts small but grows. We will no longer have to fight that incessant battle. We are freed from sin. This is the content of the good message of the kingdom. And this also provides us glasses to see all of the miracles Jesus will perform. The joy at which we can see a blind man given sight, or a paralyzed man the ability to walk, or a leper cleansed. All of that has spiritual implications as well as the physical. But it is all taken away as, as we grow, as we grow old, as we feel the weight of that God's kingdom even fixes that. That's how full the kingdom of God is and what it means here. 
And last, the last, good, the last part of the timing of this good news is the timing of this good news, I should say. That's what Jesus says. What is his, his takeaway from this? That it is fulfilled now in your hearing. But to fully understand the, the, what's going on here, we have to look at this passage from Isaiah again. And it's actually something that doesn't make its way into the quotation of Jesus. Look at this quotation of Isaiah 61. It ends with verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolls up the scroll. That's where he stops. If you were to turn to Isaiah 61, it would continue, and it would continue with this. After the reference to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, it would say, and the day of vengeance of our God. So the coming one was anointed with the Holy Spirit to deliver this good news, the, new, the news of the, year, the Lord's favor. That's the idea of jubilee, the year of jubilee, the, the fullness of expression and rest in God in this anointed one. It's come, he says. The year of the Lord's favor has come, and yet in Isaiah's words, but would also come would be the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't quote that. Why not? Because here there is a delay. It's not that he's not going to bring it. He certainly will. That, that's in part of his second aspect of this passage and the rejection that's coming. There is a day of vengeance coming. It's not that he doesn't believe in that. It's that what he's highlighting is the nowness of this good news. It's here now, and there's a delay in it. There's time to repent. There's good news to be proclaimed. There's disciples to be made. The timing of the kingdom is fulfilled in their very hearing. It's here, and right now it's the time of good news. It's a time of the Lord's patience. The Lord shows forth his patience, and we see that, do we not? These years, each year, each day that passes is a patience of our Lord to delay this vengeance that is coming. But he is putting it back until his kingdom is brought forth, until his people and his subjects are brought in. That's good news. The church is given time to operate. You see, those who had originally and, and read the scriptures in that day and age often connected the two and thought with the coming of the Messiah was the good news to God's people and the judgment of his enemies, and they thought it would happen right then and there, and it wouldn't. Even if it does occur in a partial way, it wouldn't come as the day of vengeance yet. That is put off. So the coming, the timing of the kingdom is now. And, and so the people respond to this message and they marvel. They marvel. It's marvelous in their sight. They wonder at, at, at Jesus, the, the son of the carpenter, the carpenter himself who says these things. But it turns then to a message where Jesus gives a message of rejection, a message of warning. This is our second point. The crowds respond and receive it well, and then Jesus immediately goes into to this, and he says to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What does this proverb mean, physician healing himself? What are they saying? They, they're likely saying one of two things, and these are closely connected. They're, they're either saying, you profess, so now produce. So you, you talk is cheap, prove it. That, that could be an aspect of what it is. You, you're saying this, bring it about, prove it. Or, and I think this is more likely the way they're taking it, something like family first. 
Physician, heal yourself. Heal, heal those closest to you. What you did in the surrounding regions, all these marvelous works, all those that indicate your power and the uprising of the people of God, do here now in your hometown. Do for us. We are ready. We're the poor to receive you. But it's not statements of faith. It's not statements of understanding. It's statements of presumption. It's the idea of an entitlement. It's a misunderstanding of God's kingdom and what it means. So that's likely the way they're taking it. They wanted Jesus to perform great miracles and signs before them, not only to prove his claim, but because they felt like they deserved it as members of his hometown. Those who he knew, free them from Rome, heal their diseases, grant them riches, all these things. And so Jesus says... Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. People are not accepting the truth of Jesus' sermon, and what is about to come proves this. What they really wanted were these signs and miracles and wonders, and what they got was the preaching of Jesus, and then it turned into preaching they didn't like. Preaching that they found so repugnant that they went from marveling to then these, this idea of murder, of group mob murder. Just imagine that. Just imagine taking one who grew up among you and in one second marveling over his words, ready to tell him to do all these marvelous works, and then, as a body, rise up, drive him to a cliff so you can toss him to his death. It's a rather strong reaction to it all. Jesus has been saying that they will reject. The prophets have always rejected. And so what he has, has said is that they're no better than those who rejected the prophets of God. He tells that to people who thought they were those who received the prophets of God. He tells them, in a synagogue service no less, that they're no better and in fact are less deserving of the title poor and captive and those who should receive the good news, they are less deserving of that than these Gentiles in the Old Testament. Elijah went to a Gentile widow. Elisha healed a Gentile leper. He didn't heal the people of God. He went to them. He went to the true poor. Which doesn't mean that no one in Israel is, is of the poor in spirit and those to receive the gospel. But what it means is that the way they're understanding it isn't, make, makes them those who shouldn't receive that message. They don't get it. Stephen makes a similar point in Acts 7.52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who anointed beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you've now betrayed and murdered. This is a common theme in God's word. The, the rejection of the people of God, and, and we understand people of God there as the covenant community, the physical covenant community, the rejection that they often showed to the very revelation in God who sent his prophet to this very message. Jesus warning the people that they are not automatically members of God's kingdom. They don't understand what, who, and are the poor. In fact, they are presumptive, entitled covenant elites. And they're going to do the very thing that proves his message. Although the homeland rejects him, others will respond and see God's work. You see here a little bit of a foretaste, a little bit of a preview of what's going to happen the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. The Jews as a nation are going to reject their Savior. It's going to go to those who are the poor because God's good news and kingdom will come. 
and they're misunderstanding it. So they try to kill him. They try to kill him. In effect, they take what Jesus was saying is that these Nazareans, these people of Nazareth, were worse than Syrian lepers and Phoenician widows. How dare he? Dare he say that about us deserving Jewish law-keeping people of God? How dare he say that? Indignation. Are we those who are indignant that we would not just be part of the kingdom for our, our membership, our birth? Very similar to John's message just, just chapters ago. It is a repentant, broken, poor spirit that God comes to, and we need to look at ourselves there. Will we presume salvation or, like the true poor, respond to good news with a changed life? Be careful how you answer. Be careful what you assume. Don't make the mistake of the Israelites because it implies, if you say you are part of that kingdom, it implies true humility and repentance. It implies a changed heart and a changed life. If that is not yours, then you're entitled and presumptive. You are just like the Israelites who received the prophets of the Lord and tried to kill them. Unless we receive it in faith, repentance, and humility. And what do you place your faith? Your position? Your good deeds? Your intrinsic worth? That's what the, his hometown were doing. These people were looking for Jesus to prove himself with miracles and signs. They were wanting a different type of kingdom than what Jesus was bringing. And do we do the same? And how, how would we do the same? Do we do the same when we expect Jesus to prove himself and how he provides for us? Physician, heal your people. Physician, heal yourself. Do this for us. I think sometimes we display the attitude of these people. We place our faith in Jesus, but... But what we want is something return. We, we need him to, to, uh, to, re- to remove the issues of our life, to operate, to operate in ways that we approve of. And, and then we'll respond. Then that's good news of the kingdom. Great. But really what we're doing is we're wanting that. We're wanting to be the people. We're wanting to receive this. Prove yourself. Do the miraculous signs in our life. They were amazed at Jesus' words. Are we amazed at these words, but are not understanding them, just as they did not? They marveled. If Jesus wouldn't have continued, I wonder what would have happened there. These people have proven themselves quite rash. What would they have done if he had stopped and had not likened them to those who would kill the prophets of God? Then what would they have done? Would they have, would they have put him on a throne? I don't know. But in the continuation of the gospel, you see Simeon's, in the earlier song of Luke, his point, the rising, the falling of many, and a sword. A sword that's revealing the hearts of men, that's cutting through. Often we like the sound of the gospel, we like what Jesus tells us, but it doesn't go further than an outward wonder, doesn't go further than merely something that can provide us some sort of foothold on this earth. The kingdom of God needs to be wholeheartedly embraced or you're not part of it. It needs to be one that you're a captive, you're a prisoner, you're blind, you're poor, and in and through the grace of Christ, you see it and know it, and to you this is the best 
news ever. This is Naaman being purified from leprosy. It's the widow having the prophet Elijah there and that provision. It's life itself. Those are the true members of the kingdom. Christ's message shows there is this good news, and this good news has time to operate, but a judgment is coming. Is this the Jesus you want? Wasn't the one his hometown wanted. The Messiah came to his people, revealed the truth of who he was, even the fulfillment of it in his day, and they said, no, that's not it. That's not what we've been hoping for. That's not what we want. Let's get rid of this guy. But this is the true ministry of Jesus. Jesus' preaching brings mixed results. Jesus' ministry is a double-edged sword, bringing deliverance for the captives, but rejection for those who reject him. Jesus' ministry is characterized by a message of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will restore and redeem, but a kingdom that causes rising and falling. People of God, heed these words. As we began, so we close. There is profound good news here. The best. The greatest news that can be given. The kingdom of God has come into the poor Oppressed prisoners, the best news ever. Heed as well the warning. Do not presume. Correct what kingdom you may be looking for and wanting and place your whole hope in the Messiah who's come. He's anointed with the Spirit to proclaim to you the best news ever. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord in heaven, we see this message, a message that would characterize your very ministry and a message that brings mixed results, joyful deliverance for the poor, and a sharp warning. And we pray that to all of us here, that you would speak to our heart. And for those of us here who are those who place and have placed faith in you, may we be nourished and in hope even in joy of the message of the kingdom that has already come, of which we are a part, and of which we we wait with eager anticipation the reversal of tears, the fixing of all that is wrong, down from our own spirit and need for a Savior and justification, even down to our bodies that daily decay in front of us. What good news. And we praise you. And for, and if there are those here who are looking for a different kingdom, looking for a different savior, presumptive covenant elites, if if that were to characterize hearts here, we pray, Lord, work in our hearts, work in them, that we would be the true poor, those who would respond to the message of your kingdom, not with anger and wrath, not with the desire to get rid of the savior, but to embrace him. We pray this in his great name.